If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on a move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 154. Well, just ahead, Chegg sounds the alarm about the current state of higher education in the U.S. It's not what you think. And yes, you asked for it. We're going back to the boating industry with the results of a company that seems like it's doing well, but no one seems to give much care to those results. And why one emerging biotech company is focused on democratizing skin disease therapies conversation with Dice Therapeutics CEO, Dr. Kevin Judice, about his strategy to build a lasting biotech business. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With ERA, customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And yes, you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, Gotta catch my breath there. But if you want to make sure you get the show right when it's dropped, hit the subscribe button, then you'll know exactly when the show is happening. You'll catch the very latest episode of The Drill Down by clicking that subscribe button and following us. And The Drill Down is brought to you by Brain Trust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Brain Trust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com, to learn more. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We're going to explain the business stories behind some stocks on the move. The moves don't always make sense. That's why we look at the business and helping me do that is executive producer, Isaac Webster. Isaac? Hello, hello. How are you doing today, Corey? Great. What a beautiful Good. day. It is a beautiful day. It's very overcast here in sunny Los Angeles, but it'll be sunny later on. I don't know if you can tell, but uh, I have a little bit of a sunburn because it's so sunny here right now. Really? Yeah. That's supposed to show up in your voice? Ah, funny. Corey, what stocks <laughs> you drilling down on today? <laughs> Um, I want to start with Chegg. 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 Do you know company? I, I don't. I don't. I always um, confuse it with Chug, but you know. Which is which is a high school, a college um, activity. At least it was when I was in college. <laughs> Chegg trades under CHGG and shares have fallen 78% a year and haven't really recovered at all since suffering an almost 50% decline in one day back in November 2021. In other words, right now, Chegg is trading just above its 54-week low of almost 16 bucks a share. Yeah, the stock got rocked when they announced disappointing earnings. Um, now, disappointing earnings is, is, a, is a cliche. It usually refers to what the analysts expected. In fact, in this case, the company really did come out and say, hey, things are a lot worse than we thought. They delivered a, a, a solid quarter, which represented double-digit growth kind of across the board in revenues and earnings. Uh, but they warned that they were suddenly seeing some signs that the coming year was not going to be 
what they had expected, reducing their guidance, shocking the analysts who uh, it seems weren't analyzing the company, but instead were just listening to the, what the management was telling them about the company. Um, and so they were caught completely off guard um, and punished the stock with downgrades or tried to punish the stock or tried to, too late after the, uh, the horses out of the barn, tried to warn uh, investors that the stock wasn't going to do what they thought it was going to do, that the business wasn't going to do what the that they thought it was going to do. So let's talk about Chegg's business. Chegg's business is assisting students in college. And it is informed by the first ex experience of, I think, of the CEO, Daniel Rosenzweig. I think Daniel Rosenzweig is one of the unsung heroes of Silicon Valley. He did arguably the best deal any public company has ever done in Silicon Valley when, as COO of Yahoo, he acquired a commanding stake of a tiny little business called Alibaba, which ended up being you know, the great value of Yahoo that was uh, uh, the, the fortune that many fought over in some interesting proxy battles and so on in, in, uh, in taking over Yahoo. But uh, that was an acquisition that Dan uh, oversaw while he was at Yahoo. He went on to Chegg when his kids were about to go to college and uh, built this business um, that helped. Initially, it was renting textbooks, and then it was online textbooks. Then it was all kinds of support for students. And then COVID comes around and the pandemic comes around. And it suddenly has to really um, emphasize online um, uh, help for students in higher education. And they had some terrific quarters and years and did nothing but build on that. And have seen nothing but uh, uh, momentum into that and out of that pandemic until what they announced is about to happen now. Now, you would think, Isaac, your kids are little. Maybe this is not in the forefront of your brain. My kids are not, and it very much is uh, mine, um, which is what's happening with college students and enrollment right now. And I hear these stories anecdotally from all the, um, the the parents around me who also have high school seniors and juniors and so on, and what's happening to their um, applications. And schools that were hard to get into have been harder to get into because students deferred uh, time from school. They've decided to not go back to school until school's fully back. And so they're putting off, uh, uh, They the last two years, they have deferred their uh, beginning of their freshman year. They have done years abroad. They have done years working. They've probably done years on the Xbox, years mm -hmm. and years. Oh, yeah. Just a calendar year on the Xbox. Um, but I think that we've seen a lot of students uh, decide just not to go to college quite yet. And now you have a situation where on the margin, um, you have a lot of students who actually are making a choice as to whether they want to pursue higher education or whether they want to pursue working. And what we uh, often see is that during a recession, people flock to schools, to higher education. And when an e there's an economic boom, on the margin, that is less so, that community colleges are less full, that some schools that, that cater some of the, you know, I was in 2006 and 2007, I was at a, a hedge fund where I was, I had taken a big position short um, a handful of uh, these for-profit education companies online because I believe that their enrollment practices were going to collapse because they were lying to their students about the educational outcomes and the, and the actual costs. And all these things were true, but enrollments blossomed in 2008 when the economy collapsed in 2009. And they, while all these companies eventually got busted for their enrollment practices and some of these companies completely went away, um, in the short term, they saw a rising enrollment in a declining economy. Well, now what we hear from Chegg is the opposite. We see that students are choosing earning over learning. Here's CEO Dan Rosenzweig from Chegg. With higher wages and increased cost of living, more people are shifting their priorities towards earning over learning, resulting in lower course load 
or delaying enrollment in schools at this time. In the U.S. alone, we have seen approximately 1 million students forego or postpone higher education over the last two years. The impact of these factors is evident in the reduced traffic to higher education support services. This has made forecasting at this time challenging, and while we expect many of these trends to be temporary, we are reducing our guidance to better reflect the current market conditions. So uh, a very tough time for them to forecast. So says Rosenzweig and, and I, uh, the analysts were, uh, at least one of the analysts out there was suspicious on Wall Street as what the real reasons were. I don't have any de- reason to doubt Rosenzweig after so many years at, at, at Shake of, of being a truth teller. Um, so, uh, you know, a shocking uh, change in the way people are enrolling in school. Now that schools are open, you'd think they'd be rushing back. But in fact, some students are going to forego their education entirely, or at least for now. I don't know how I feel about this. It's I feel like I should be uh, sad, shaking my fists in the air about this, maybe, but I don't know. It's it's. Uh, I feel like there's a shift happening in the economy, and I'm not sure how it's supposed to play out. Well, I also think that there's a bigger shift in the. I mean, this is this is this is opinion, not reporting. Right. So so you might want to fast forward through this part, but it, very briefly, I think that there is a changing notion of the value of an education of a higher education. Right. Particularly for those students to whom higher education is not some highfalutin um, uh, study of um, big ideas, but is really vocational. And with the cost so expensive, if you're going to go to school because you want to come out of school with a better job repairing motorcycles or something it's not like happening. it, yeah. you might not want to spend $65,000. And guess what? I probably wouldn't encourage you to go to spend $65,000 to learn how to fix a 2022 Yamaha motorcycle. Because in 2029, those skills might not be very useful. Right. Um, You know, I'm a big believer in a liberal arts education. That's me, that's my opinion. But I think that when you learn to think, you learn to adapt to the future. But not Mm -hmm. everyone approaches their college education like that. And I think that for those students, they're they're making more money, they're getting raises that they weren't getting before. The the, um, economic achievement that seemed out of their reach because they didn't have a college degree might seem a little closer because of rising wages in this economy and uh, the strength of the U.S. economy, which is where Chegg's operations are primarily, the U.S. economy right now. Corey, what is your next drill down? All right, I babbled on too much about uh, Chegg, so I'm going to be brief here with just one more stock. But I do want to circle back, maybe for the last time here for a little bit, on the boating industry. We've been talking about boating a little uh, bit. Everyone We've been circling home. around Drink. Brunswick. We're talking about boating again. Drink. We got a request from uh, one of our devoted listeners, Jim, who we made fun of last week for asking for stock advice. We didn't make fun of Jim. It was just another chance for me to make the no, point. No, we that did we don't not. You stock did. Advice. No, there was no we. I did not make fun of Jim. <laughs> I only make fun of him to his face or on the Twitter text messages that might happen. Um, I haven't actually seen Jim's face in many years. Uh, my, my loss. Uh, Brunswick Corporation, maker of uh, boats. We've talked about them in this company. They did report earnings end of last week. Um, if I told you, so so, what's happened to the shares first, Isaac? So Brunswick trades under BC and BC share BC shares have fallen 28% a year, although shares have gained almost 7% in the past five days. Right. So and yet- a little bit of a inching upward. Yeah, but this stock has really been a, a, a pain zone for investors. And- I got to say, um, it shows you this great disconnect between what companies do and stocks do sometimes. Um, you know, if if I look at, um, I, I use a site called Finviz quite a bit, which I think is great, finviz.com. Um, mm-hmm. That's a free plug for Finviz. 
for the week, for the month, for the quarter, for the half year, for the year, and for the year to date, the stock is down. Yeah. So in seven days, down to 1%. In a month, down 5%. In a quarter, down 15 17% for half a year. 31% for the, for the year. Year to date, 24%. This stock's been a dog. But if I told you a year ago, Brunswick revenues a year from now, well, they'll be up 18% in the first quarter of 2022. If I told you a year ago, operating profits would be up 17%. If I told you the company was able to do a bunch of new acquisitions and net profits would be up 10% in spite of that. If I told you they had huge share buybacks, if I told you earnings per share would be up 29% in a year, you would think the freaking stock would be up. Right. Uh, and, and the fact that this company is better on every possible operating metric, the possible, you know, operating margins a little bit lower because some of the acquisitions they did. All right, but operating profits are up. Earnings are up. Earnings per share are 29% better than they were a year ago. It's, it's unbelievable to me that the stock market looks at this and says, boy, don't want to own this company. They're just doing too well. So why are they? A, so what's the story? So one of the concerns, uh, the continuing concerns out there are analysts writing about fuel costs. And the company has been flat out. They've said, look, it doesn't make any sense. Fuel costs do not impact our sales. So on the earnings call uh, at the end of last week, company came out and said, look, let's just do some basic math here about how much people use their boats, how much the gas cost last year and how much the gas cost this year and what the difference in cost is to our users. And what you find is that the boating lifestyle, the difference in a, a, a rise, even a dramatic rise in gas prices that we've seen in the last year, well, I, I I'm not, okay, the company's buying back shares because they think the shares are too cheap, cheap. I'm not giving you any investment advice whatsoever. I don't own shares in this thing. I just think that it's very interesting that the stock does not reflect the changing um, uh, environment for this company. This company is doing better and yet its stock is doing worse. And if fuel cost is the reason, well, listen to what David Folks, Brunswick CEO, has to say about the calculations for the average uh, Brunswick user. We kind of did the calculation based on our uh, kind of average votes, average votes, uh, along with some data that's really well established from third party sources. So, for example, the EPA um, publishes average boat usage data every year. They, they say boats are used about 35 hours in a season. Obviously, there's seasonality here as well in the northern markets. Season is shorter. Um, so if you look at our average horsepower, which is in the kind of 140 horsepower range for an outboard, uh, you look at the boat that it's on, the fuel consumption, you multiply that by the hours and the, um, the delta in fuel price between uh, earlier this year and um, earlier last year, which is in the $1.50 range, something like that, uh, you come out with about $160. And so we, we you know, just to uh, round that up a bit, we put it at $200. Obviously, if you have a more powerful boat, if you have more engines on the boat, the delta is going to be higher. But we thought it would be useful to dimension it for the average boat that we make and also to leverage really well-established um, third-party uh, kind of average usage profiles. That's, that was the calculation. You will, you will see in other – I know that there was another estimate done – to do with wake sports boats. Um, they tend to use more fuel because they use a lot of power and torque to generate that big wake behind them. 
Uh, but for our average boat, remember our, about two thirds of our boats are aluminum fishing boats. Um, the fuel usage is, is very low. So there you have it. Basic math, people. I mean, it just, you know, the uh, owning money, losing venture backed companies that might someday grow a lot compared to with this company that is growing at a at double digit rates and showing increasing profits and buying back shares. Um, I guess another way to look at this for some people, this might be a way they sleep better at night, but um, I think it starts to show you why in the, in the, in the short run, the stock market is a voting machine, not a weighing machine. All right, coming up, we're going to talk to an interesting company, the CEO of, of Dice Therapeutics, CEO Kevin Judice. I think that's where they get the name Dice Therapeutics from Judice. Oh, but, I just uh, thought of that. Yeah. Yeah, see, we've been talking to Kai for a while. Um, but, but Kevin, uh, Kevin Judice, an uh, interesting conversation with an interesting CEO solving some interesting problems in an interesting way. Don't take my word for it. Listen on, beloved listener. The Drill Down Podcast continues right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. As promised, we are joined right now by the CEO of Dice Therapeutics. Kevin Judis, the CEO, joins us, who is a PhD but doesn't like to brag. Hey, Corey, how are you? Uh, I'm glad to have you on the show. Um, yours is an interesting company um, in that the problems you're trying to solve, uh, uh, the, the therapeutics you're trying to design, it seems to me are not. Uh, tell me if I read this right, because I don't. I, I, I read this stuff all the time. I read your SEC filings and and mm -hmm. um, uh, try to understand the business, but it seems to me that. One of the interesting things about what you're doing is you're trying to come up with better, easier solutions to uh, uh, medical problems that might already have some more difficult treatments, but have treatments yeah. of some kind. Yeah, I think that's a very accurate summary of what we're doing. Uh, in the particular case of our lead program, we're trying to make a drug that will impact <clears throat> certain diseases in the autoimmunity space, uh, among them, for example, psoriasis. Right. And there are some really good therapies out there uh, that are injectable. And, you know, so the patients getting them will have to turn up at a derms office, you know, let's say once a month, uh, and get an injection. And if they get that injection, they're going to do really well. Their psoriasis is going to mostly clear, uh, which is very cool. That's a big advance in medicine. And we salute the originators of those drugs uh, because they've changed patient lives. Having said that, uh, for a disease like psoriasis or rheumatoid arthritis or whatnot, these are chronic and non-life-threatening diseases. Uh, and <clears throat> really, I think these patients would do better overall if they had oral meds, they could just take it home. And so that's really the thesis of what we've been trying to do. It's, it's a, an effort in a way to sort of democratize these therapies, right? Because not everybody has the kind of insurance coverage or access to the, to the right derms to get those injectables. And then some people well, just don't like injectables. Yeah, and what a pain in the ass to have to go to the doctor every month for something that's yeah. already a problem. And, and you know, I, I read a, a, a study recently. It was more of a, a piece of social work where it was saying that, you know, if you provide patients with a ride to the hospital 
their likelihood of success in their therapy goes up X percentage. Oh, yeah. And it oh, wasn't yeah. like taxis are good for you. It yeah. was that you're more likely to get the treatment that you're after. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's an underestimated feature of the American healthcare system right now. So just to, to put some numbers around that, in the case of these drugs that are so wonderful for psoriasis, if you get the injection, it's still the case that probably less than 50% of the people who are eligible for that injection get it. Right. And that's some combination of access to the medicine, affordability, whatever. But they're just not getting the medicine and they could be and should be. So that's where we come in. What I've also observed, though, in the world of biotech companies um, and, yes, stocks, I always say we're not looking at stocks, we're looking at businesses, but we're looking at publicly traded businesses. And it seems to me that the path to um, that most that a lot of biotech companies pursue in their early days and your company is in its early days um, that the path they pursue is for um, uh, medical problems for which there is no treatment mm -hmm. or uh, which is to say that they can rush through the FDA approval process because they're the only hope mm -hmm. or they pursue testing, um, which anyone can get a test, right? You know, just right. in case you have this, you know, the, right. the, the addressable market of a, of a test is always going to be larger than the people who are positive for that test. <laughs> It's kind of by definition, yeah. And so that, that it ends up being a faster path to um, uh, a public listing, and maybe to um, maybe to fortune, maybe not. But it does seem that things like making life easier for for the uh, millions of people suffering from psoriasis is not a priority, and therefore you've chosen a harder path for Dice Therapeutics. You know, I. Uh... So I appreciate the sentiment for sure. And I guess all I would say is that I've, you can tell me I've I'm wrong. You're, you're in good company. Yeah, no, I've been on both paths. Right. And I've been down the cancer path. I've been in antibiotics, for example. And it's really I guess what I would say is it's really hard to make a medicine that helps people uh, no matter what you're working on. There are particular challenges for us, um, you know, working in this area, um, not least being our drugs need to be extraordinarily safe, right? So, so if you think about it, if you have cancer, a lot of cancer drugs have pretty gnarly side effects, right? But yeah, and we see will, that when this when the phase we'll see early. We've talked about that in the show lately that some companies will come back with a phase two study. They're like, oh well, maybe if we give it to them half as often, and they're like, no, 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 these safety results. Cool that half the patients <laughs> were cured, the other half were killed. That's not good, right? Right. So, but but in uh, derm diseases like psoriasis or, you know, arthritis, things like that. Uh, safety bar is way higher because these people are going to take this med the rest of their lives, right? And cancer patients can and often do uh, tolerate a constellation of side effects that just would flat out not fly at all in, uh, let's say, like a heart medicine, right? A statin or something you've got to take for daily, like I'm on statins, <clears throat> you know. Uh, half the population is, if they were at all uh, side effect prone, that wouldn't work. I, I know exactly what you're talking about, I'll say, just that, that, that yeah, cancer drugs, uh, chemotherapy, radiation, those are horrible um, uh, two-thumbed, you know, ham-handed, what's the right word? Ham-handed treatments that make you really sick. Radiation for all of its complex science is just burning the shit out of someone's body um, in the case of rectal cancer I suppose actually burning the shit out of someone's body burning their skin burning <laughs> burning parts of the body 
for hope that the cancer will also get burnt. Uh, not very strategic or targeted and with tons of side effects. I, I get your point. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so anyway, I think uh, I appreciate the support and the sentiment. And we uh, are very energized by that task, right? If we can bring these important medicines to a much larger group in a better format, that's a big win, right? It's different than being the first company to try XYZ treatment for Alzheimer's or something, right? Those are right, right. different efforts fundamentally in, you know, honorable in their own ways, right? Riskier in some ways. Uh, but yeah, so we're, we're happy to be working in this space. I have always been wary of companies uh, uh, that like yours claim to be platforms. Um, I'll let you disprove me, but, and, and some of these companies, Salesforce, which I've always thought was ridiculous as when they claim to be a platform, I was wrong. Right. They were right. Mark was right. Benioff, they, it is a platform. It is not just a CRM company. Right. It's, it's a way to build other businesses. Sangamo, a stock that I own, uh, uh, full disclosure, has long claimed to be a platform and I'm still not sure that they are. Um, and I wonder, <laughs> it, it, obviously you get a better valuation in the public markets if you're a platform, not a solution. But why be a platform, not a, why not just solve a problem first? Yeah, so that's a, okay, so that's a really interesting question. And let's, let's separate, let's do some linguistic surgery here, right? So yeah, please, it's, my, it's the only kind of surgery I'm qualified to do. <laughs> let's separate the platforms you're talking about, like Salesforce, which to my mind are true platforms, uh, with the way people use platform in the biotech industry. And I would paraphrase platform and biotech as they seem to have something interesting. I, I think they can do it again. If you could, if you think you can do it again, it's a platform. Does that make sense? So, so in other really, words, you can, the treatment that works in this disease slightly altered will work in a different disease. That's the basic idea. Yeah. Is that whatever approach you took to get to this interesting medicine for psoriasis could be modified slightly to give you an interesting medicine somewhere else. And so I don't, you know, it's it's funny, uh, plat like everything else in biotech, platforms come in fashion, they go out of fashion. It sort of depends on what year you check in. Uh, but even when they're in fashion, they have been in fashion for some number of years now, you still have the fundamental rub with a biotech platform, which is no one gives it any credit. You won't really receive credit for having one until you make a product right. that looks like a real drug. Once you've made it, then people get excited, like, well, where did that come from? Could you do it again? Uh, so I really tend to think of Dice Therapeutics in its current format as a company with some interesting drugs under, you know, phases of research and development. And we have used an interesting technology to enable some phases of that work. And as we go down to look for new drugs we might work on, we'll probably run the same play. We'll have the same approach, technically speaking, at various points along the way. Whether that qualifies as a platform or an approach or an algorithm, that's beyond my pay grade, right? Like uh, the people like to think about that. And th like I say, things come in vogue, they come out of vogue. What's never out of fashion is a good drug. If you can make a good drug that really yeah. helps patients, then you've got the bankings of a good company. And if that good company is, is stopped, you know, is, is, populated by people who really care about their work and are smart and work hard and you get the right investors, then you can potentially do it again. And that's really what it's all about, right? If you're trying to build a company that's going to last, you're going to have to be able to repeat whatever the first thing is uh, a couple times. And that I think fundamentally is what people mean by platform in our space. 
So maybe you can come up with a simple, uh, maybe you can't, simple metaphor to explain how this psoriasis drug works uh, you know, with hopes that it will work. I know you're early on in phase one clinical trials. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Let me give it that crack. So, <clears throat> so the first thing I think is, is important to keep in mind in, in the field of autoimmunity is that your task as a, as a drug uh, discoverer is fundamentally different than your task in a field like cancer or infectious disease. And by that, I mean, patient has cancer or the patient has some viral infection. You don't want to be overly subtle about that. You want to shut that disease down. So I think of it as like one of those big breaker switches, like in the old Frankenstein movies, right? Like you flip that puppy over and you're off. That's the goal, right? You just want to hammer it. it. And the, the bigger right. hammer you got, the better. With autoimmunity, it's very different because in autoimmunity, what is literally happening is your own immune system, which for you know the bulk of your life is doing just exquisite work, right? It has, you think about it like your immune system, like the front line are the white blood cells, right? They have to go around, they're circulating 24 seven throughout your body. And as they cruise around, they, they sniff in a very interesting way, all of the parts they bump into. And 99.999% of the time, the, the verdict is, oh, that belongs to us, leave it alone, right? That belongs to us, leave it alone. Oh, that's part of the heart, leave it alone. And then they get to a virus, they're like, whoa, that doesn't belong to us, kill it, right? So what happens with autoimmunity is after, in, in some patients, you know, it can happen when you're young, a lot of people it happens when you're older, the immune system sort of loses its touch a little bit, right? It sniffs something that it does belong to you, like the cartilage in your knee, and it decides for reasons that are still somewhat mysterious that doesn't belong to us, I'm going to attack it. And if your immune system attacks your own joints, you get arthritis, right? If your immune system attacks your own skin, you get psoriasis and so forth. Now, the key to this is, okay, great. So you figured that out and you want to stop the immune system from doing something it's really not supposed to do. But you can't do the old Frankenstein switch on it, right? If you just shut the immune system down, you got a different problem. Not so good. Get, yeah, a different problem. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can get all kinds every of infections, problem. <laughs> every problem at once, right? So I always call autoimmune diseases rheostat diseases, right? It's more like adjusting the thermostat in your house. There's a good temperature, and then there's bad temperatures on either side, and they're both bad for different Interesting. reasons. Yeah. I was, so, I was thinking, since we're an audio product, uh, I'm thinking of, of tuning the stereo, trying to get that station just right. Well, there you, there you and I are both dating ourselves, right? I don't know if anybody knows what it means to tune a receiver these days. But yes, I understand the analogy for sure. You want to get it just right. And that's the whole key to the thing. So in the case of the psoriasis drug we're working on, uh, there's, a, there's a collection of chemical signals called cytokines that cells use to talk to one another. Right. And so in this sort of survey, this surveillance mode I've been talking about, the white blood cells cruise around. And it's not just as simple. I mean, sometimes it is. If it finds a virus, it'll just kill it. But if it finds something bigger than that, it actually signals for help. And one of the ways they signal for help is these cytokines, right? So there's one particular cytokine called IL-17, so interleukin-17. Um, and it is secreted by a kind of white blood cell called a T-cell, TH-17. Interleukin, not the fine arts camp in northern Michigan. Uh, not that I'm that's aware of. That's interleukin. Yeah, I think that's interleukin, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough, and a little different spelling. But anyway, so IL-17 gets secreted in circumstances where the immune system needs to mount a response to certain types of insult. And it just happens that some of those insults are not actually insults, they're just part of your body. 
So what people have figured out over the years is if you slow that process down, if you turn your rheostat on IL-17 down a couple of pegs, then you can let the body heal itself. So the, the thick, you know, painful red inflamed skin that you get with psoriasis will gradually remodel itself and become normal skin. And all you're doing is just turning that knob a little bit, right? You don't want is, to shut is, the whole thing down. It would seem to me that everyone's autoimmune system is so different that that's pretty hard to do in a pill that you can't adjust for every single patient. That's a good question um, or a good observation. And what I would say is um, the tuning down, yeah, the, the, the tuning down is within a range, right? And so you just, it's not, it's not quite the same as like trying to tune in a ham radio from New Zealand, right? Where you just got to be right on it. I mean, there's a range you want to get back into. And when you find the patient, you're clearly out of that range and you can see that in tests. So if you get them back into the range, it's, uh, it's not that sensitive. You need to be back in the range without shutting it down. And to give you an example of a drug that will always work in this setting, but always has horrible side effects, like think of a, a steroid, like a corticosteroid. Uh, you can take an oral steroid for almost any kind of inflammation you have, and it will work, but you will have 10 other problems that pop up in short order. So you can't do that for very long. And that's Not least of which is the batting crown will be taken away from you. <laughs> that's a whole different issue. <laughs> that's a whole different issue. But you, 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 so you just can't do that, right? Like you can do that in emergency situations and people who have really profound arthritic joints sometimes get steroids in, injected directly into the joint and hopefully it stays mostly there and it works for a while. But even that is not, it's a temporary solution. Right. It's, a very, it's a very crude solution to a pretty sophisticated problem. So, you know, we, and I would emphasize here, we are following in the footsteps of other people who first discovered by tweaking with IL-17, you could have a good impact, right? But in following those footsteps now, we have a much better guide path to produce even better drugs. And these are drugs that would be dosed orally by mouth, so pills. And that's really And is, it, is this a matter of copying the biological response of the injectables, or is it an entirely new approach and if so, how do you how did you come upon this? Because you've been that's working also, in similar fields at other companies for years. Yeah, no, that's also a really good question. So in this case, it is, I like the way you worded it, right? It's copying the biological response. Now, the, the injectable drug that is given to do this is called a monoclonal antibody. So it's a big old protein. And that's why it has to be injected, right? If you eat proteins, you have food <laughs> so because your right. stomach digests them, right? But you have to inject them if you want them to work as medicines. So the monoclonal antibody was discovered some time ago at the, at the uh, pharma company, the Swiss pharma company, Novartis. It's called Cosentix. And Cosentix blocks the activity of IL-17 in the body. Uh, and it was first Novartis and then later Lilly, uh, who proved that blocking 17 would give you a really good benefit in psoriasis. Now, we're trying to make a drug that's absorbed orally, so it's going to have to look radically different than a monoclonal antibody. It's going to have to be really small and really compact, so it gets absorbed through, it makes it through the stomach undigested, and it gets absorbed through the lower intestine, or the upper intestine when it gets there. So, so those are different kinds of drugs. Um, and to get that kind of drug to do what the antibody does, that's been the fundamental challenge that we've been working on. We're trying to replicate with that smaller molecule, the same thing the antibody does on the IL-17 biology, 
And so when you were saying, are you trying to copy the biology of the injectable? We are to a T, right? The closer we can get to that, the happier we are because we know that those injectables are A, very effective and B, extraordinarily safe. The list of side So it's kind of like, you know, you know what the, what the key does to the lock. Now let's see if we can do it with a lock pick. Yeah, exactly. And that's or maybe vice versa, where you're trying to create a key, and then let's take it to these other these other potential solutions down the road. You think that that key, because the approach is what the approach is, which is shrinking the size of the protein so it can be taken orally, maybe yeah. it could work with other things um, such as uh, irritable bowel syndrome, fibrosis, and even right. uh, immuno-oncology, which is right. in, it seems to be in your in your plans. Yeah, that's right, because there are certain structural features to say in your metaphor, right? Once you've learned how to pick one kind of lock, then you look around biology and you say, okay, where else do these locks exist? And do I have any reason to believe that picking this particular lock would result in a useful outcome for patients? And if the answer is yes, then maybe you can go in and use some of the same techniques you did on the IL-17 story to do it again on something like alpha-4, which is for the inflammatory bowel syndrome. IBS, now I'm thinking IBS. of taking this another level. I'm thinking of the bank heist movies you see where the they ask the, the cat burglars are talking to each other and they both seem to know a certain model safe and he's cracked that one. Wow, well, I know another bank that's got the same safe. There you go. Yeah. And then they so how do we, all right, so uh, your tests are, it's interesting because you guys have raised, you know, a decent chunk of money. You've got an 800 million market cap company with right. virtually no revenues. Uh, I say that affectionately. Yes. Um, and, and, uh, you, but you've raised some, enough money such that you can probably get some tests done. Yes, correct. Correct. And as we, as we discussed a little bit earlier before the podcast started, you know, the, the tests are at this point clinical, right? So what we're doing with our lead molecule now is testing it uh, in human volunteers and looking for uh, its tolerability, its absorption profile, and then how long it hangs around in the blood, which we call the pharmacokinetic profile. So do you pick the, the medical problems you're going after based on what the clinical studies might look like and indeed how much they might cost so that you can survive longer as an unprofitable company to get to the place where you can then go after the big hairy problems? Yeah, that's actually a pretty concise summary of a lot of biotech strategies, including ours, right? You have to pick a problem that is solvable in a period of time and with an amount of money that's reasonable to expect a small company to be able to get, right? So, for example, we talked a little bit uh, before the show about Alzheimer's. You know, Alzheimer's is maybe the biggest unsolved problem out there. You know, my yeah. own mom has it, right? It's a terrible, My terrible father disease. as well. Yeah. yeah, it's horrible. But to do clinical trials in that, you know, let's say that we at Dice Therapeutics came up with a, something we thought would be a cool Alzheimer's drug. Those trials can be five, 10 years long, right? Because you think of the right. disease progresses so slowly and you've got to run it on a bunch of people that don't really have the disease yet. So you got to have a pretty big patient population. So you're sure some of them get the disease. Those are enormously expensive trials. So that and getting be, those people to remember to take their drugs oh, can well, kind of screw up your results. Yeah, there's a whole there's a whole nested set of issues there. But coming back to your point, that would be not the smartest play, I would say, for a small company to just launch into because, gee, how are you going to do that? Now, something like psoriasis is the other end of the spectrum, right? That is a disease that responds really well to therapy within about 12 weeks. So if we get uh, through the phase we're in now and get into patients, which is our plan, 
then we should be able to start seeing responses in about a month. Uh, and if we see those responses, then coming back to your question about how to run the business, what you're trying to do is prove steps along the way that kind of validate the concept you're working on, right? So if we get through a little study in patients and it'll be pretty small, and we see a signal that says, yeah, you're engaging this target and you're getting an effect, that then should encourage other investors to start putting more money in the company. And that's ultimately what you want to do. You have to keep it funded until the point where you can start selling a drug and making money of your own or someone else buys the drug. Well, what, what a fascinating uh, company, what a fascinating business. We'll certainly keep an eye on what you guys are doing because um, it's, you know, it's, 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 as, as I say, this could be the start of uh, something big. Yeah. Thanks so much, Corey. Really appreciate the invitation. It's been quite a pleasure talking with you and uh, let's do it again sometime. Yeah, I like that. Um, we'll uh, meanwhile continue to talk about dice therapeutics after the break here. When we get to the bite, the drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot, I'm going to talk to you about exactly how much money this company has raised. In fact, we'll make it a double bite. We'll give you the amount of money the company's got in the bank and how long dice therapeutics says it can keep going with the money it's already raised to get to the next step when the drill down continues. The drill down is brought to you by Era. With Era, give yourself an information advantage, connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A.com. And yes, you could ask your smart speaker to play the drill down podcast and get every serving that we offer of business news and business stories behind stocks in the move. You could also thrill your friends by walking through their homes and talking to their smart speakers and say, play the Drill Down Podcast. Then run into the next room and hit their Alexa up and say, hey Alexa, play the Drill Down Podcast. Then run into another room and say, hey, play the Drill Down Podcast. And they could have Alexas throughout their house with the sound of my voice. Isaac, doesn't that sound like a great house? Um, I do that for my family on a regular basis. So if I don't happen to be in the room talking to them, lecturing them about things, they can hear me mansplaining from every room in the house. Wonderful. Just tell your speaker to play the Drill Down Podcast. Oh, how I'm so sorry that I'm missing out on that. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, we're back with the bite, the Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. We talked about cash, and it matters so much for biotech companies right now with the horrible performance of biotech stocks last year. Biotech recently IPO'd stocks. The secondary market for a lot of companies is closed. And the question is going to be, I think, throughout this year with biotech, Isaac, um, where are these guys going to get the money to fulfill their promise, especially if some of the early test results aren't there? That's not the case here with Dice Therapeutics. But the question is just, are they going to be able to get to the end of this race? Do they have enough uh, cash in the bank to do so. You're going to see some mergers out of desperation. You're going to see some companies go out of business. And it raises the question with Dice Therapeutics, how much cash do they have? And how far is it going to get them? Well, the cash and equivalent of marketable securities at the end of the last quarter for this company, $319,300,000 the end wow. of the last year. And so that's $319,300,000. Well, it is or it isn't. It depends how fast you spend it, right? Uh, but... Um, with their current cash position, the company says they're going to fund the operations all the way through the middle of 2024. And they expect they will have their key clinical milestones by then. So they won't need to dilute themselves any further until they have some news. I think we all hope for them that it's good news, but we shall see. Um, but uh, the company's uh, got the wherewithal 
they say, to get to where they need by the end of 2024, which is uh, still quite a ways out. And we'll be tracking and see if he keeps up, keeps up with it. Yeah, indeed. All right. Well, thank you for listening to Drill On Podcast. We do appreciate your time. We hope you enjoyed the story of Dice and the other companies we talked about. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Ben Wilson is our editor. And he is extraordinary. Would you agree, Isaac? I would. Yeah. He's extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. All right. The Drill Down Production of the Business Podcast Network. 